0: Does Your Doctor Kill Babies? That question was written in large letters across a billboard displayed in the Alaska Right to Life booth at the State Fair in Palmer. And underneath that question was a list of several names, including Dr. Carolyn Brown. In 1981, this billboard, along with things published in the group's newsletter, like Calling Carolyn Baby Killer Brown, were part of a libel lawsuit that would go on to reach the Alaska Supreme Court. Carolyn has lived in Juneau since 2001, but from the late 1970s to the late 80s, she was a gynecologist and an obstetrician in Palmer. She delivered thousands of babies, which she was known and praised for. She also performed abortions, which she was known and praised for, and vilified, She remembers being told how
1: bad it was and how evil it was that I was killing babies. Yeah, and that God would get get me for that and I would burn in hell and all of the other stuff that people say
0: to people. Some people know this history about Carolyn, but what may be less known is that Carolyn herself faced and still faces a level of uncertainty about her role as an abortion provider.
1: You put an egg and a sperm together, does this become a person? Does this person have a soul? What is a soul?
0: Uh, Do I have the right to kill this? Is this just a bunch of tissue? You're listening to Private Right from the Alaska Beacon, a show about abortion in Alaska, a conservative state with a strong right to choose. I'm Lisa Fu. In this series, you'll hear Alaskans talk about abortion and its impact on the state and their lives. The stories and voices throughout the series represent different, nuanced perspectives on both sides of the issue. This is Episode 2, Dr. Brown. Carolyn was born in 1937 and raised in Hereford, Texas, about 50 miles southwest of Amarillo her parents divorced when she was around 9 and her mom left so carolyn and her brother went to live with their grandmother carolyn knew she wanted to be a doctor from an early age though she isn't sure how that idea formed
1: i decided to become a doctor when i was about 10 years old and i was working in a cotton patch and there were a whole bunch of other people working in that cotton patch and here i'm this little kid with this 6 foot cotton sack that i'm pulling behind me filling you know pulling cotton and I decided, I don't think I want to do this all of my life. And so I, why I chose that I wanted to be a doctor, maybe I had been to a movie. I didn't, I didn't have any books to read. Uh, my growing up in background was uh, a, a little bit challenging, I will say. Um, but I decided at that point that I really was interested
0: in, in becoming a doctor. Carolyn's first introduction to a library wasn't until age 12. I started reading everything they had in the children's part of the
1: library, but I'd read a lot of biographies, and I read read Einstein, and I read Livingston, and I read Schweitzer, and I read all that stuff. And I was just mesmerized with medicine, and so that really made more firm what I was going
0: to do. She took all the science classes that were possible for her to take in middle and high school, and went to college at Hardin-Simmons University in Abilene, Texas, where she majored in chemistry and biology. She says she stuffed herself full of science and graduated magna cum laude. Then it came time to deciding what medical school to go to.
1: Well, by that point in my life, if there's one thing I wanted to do, it was get out of Texas. Whatever I have to do, I got
0: to get out of Texas. That's not for me. But she didn't want a big medical school, and she didn't want to go too far north. Because I was too much of a hick, and I knew that, and I was poor as Job's turkey. Absolutely poor as Job's turkey. When Carolyn was growing up, she was considered, and these are her words, poor white trash. She did not think highly of herself. Carolyn got into the medical schools in Texas— but decided to go outside the state to Bowman Gray School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Carolyn met her husband, George Brown, there, and the two doctors came to Alaska in 1965. They worked as public health doctors with the U.S. Public Health Service. They were based out of Anchorage, but traveled all over the state. The two then went to Hawaii, where Carolyn did her first residency in public health and preventive medicine. Afterward, they returned to Alaska. Carolyn had a long list of jobs during that time. One of them was working at the old Anchorage Municipal Health Department on 3rd Street. Carolyn was inundated with women who had a lot of health questions about women's issues, questions Carolyn couldn't always answer. So she decided to go back to the University of Hawaii to do a second residency. Throughout this whole time, Carolyn didn't have strong feelings about abortion. In fact, she didn't really think about it at all. It
1: never entered my mind as I went through college. It never entered my mind when I went through medical school. Um... Merciful heavens, and um, when we came up here in 65, it never entered my mind then. It never entered my mind until I decided my second residency was in obstetrics and gynecology.
0: A second residency in Hawaii on obstetrics and gynecology made sense to Carolyn. She'd already had surgery, medicine, and emergency room experience. It was 1975. The U.S. Supreme Court had decided on Roe versus Wade two years prior, ruling that the constitutional right to privacy includes the right to access an abortion.
1: So when I got there, I had a choice. They wanted to teach all of the residents how to do abortions. You didn't have to do them. You were offered it. They suggested it. And it was an excellent teaching program and if you didn't want to do it and there were some who based on religious background chose not to do it then they were given other kinds of work double work grunt work we call it Um, but those of us who said okay uh, we will go into that program um,
0: then fine we were we were set up to do that carolyn says the teaching was superb she learned from people from all over the world But as one of the first women to go through that program, she says it was also extremely misogynist. So Carolyn had to make a choice. Was she going to be one of the boys and perform abortions, or would she go do grunt work? She decided to be one of the boys. Even then, she still didn't have an opinion about abortion. Again, I
1: didn't have a decision about what did I really think about it because I
0: hadn't really processed what that really meant. Carolyn knew that she wouldn't have an abortion. She had to ask herself, what am I doing? It weighed on her, but she didn't have much time to dwell on it. Except once in a
1: while, I did think about it, and I,
0: I uh, went to church, um, and I
1: did all of those things that I sort of grew up doing way back back in the day. But I had to come to some peace with myself. I was either going to do this and I was going to learn this skill. Or um, I, was, I was going
0: to tell the chief of the department, I can't do this. I just can't do this. She learned the skill. During her days at the clinic, Carolyn was doing 10 to 14 abortions a day. But I never could decide for myself um, that an egg and a sperm
1: was a person, because a person is a philosophical definition. Um, a sperm and an egg, when they come together, that's tissue up to a certain point. And then you've got the whole philosophical thing is when does the soul enter the sperm and the egg? Um, I didn't know, and
0: I still don't know. But I've struggled with that for all of, all of these many, many years. When she was done with her residency in Hawaii, she and George and the two kids returned to Alaska in 1978. She and George started Women and Children's Health Associates, a nonprofit that operated an obstetric, gynecologic, and pediatric practice in the Matsu Valley. Carolyn's office was based in Palmer, and George's pediatric office in Wasilla. Carolyn initially worked out of the Valley Hospital, though she didn't have a proper office.
1: But the hospital had a little front room just off of the waiting room when you go into the hospital. And it was maybe 16 by 16 square feet. And so we found um, a table with stirrups on it, and a desk, and a chair, and a screen. And I, I didn't have a secretary. I didn't have an assistant. I had nothing. But the people started coming. It was just absolutely amazing.
0: After about eight months, she moved her office to its own building just outside the hospital's parking lot. Carolyn had a very active OBGYN practice. She said she would work 100 hour weeks. She didn't make payment a barrier.
1: Mercy, in those days, uh, I gave stuff free. I did free C sections. I took bear meat. I took salmon. You know, it was the old-fashioned
0: way of of doing whatever it is you had to do. She also provided abortions, which were legal in Alaska. Carolyn accepted Medicaid patients, and people from all over the state were referred to her.
1: Literally every quadrant of the state. um, And people would um, call the office, or they would call whatever practitioner they knew, or... For way out in the villages, uh, they would contact the public health nurse.
0: During this time, Carolyn says there weren't ultrasounds. She had to tell how far along someone was from doing a pelvic exam. It was up to her to determine if a woman was, for instance, eight weeks pregnant or 22 weeks. In the late 1970s, doctors in Alaska could perform abortions up to 150 days, or about 21 and a half weeks. To provide an abortion beyond that, state regulation allowed doctors to use reasonable judgment. Carolyn stuck with the 150-day limit, which meant she sometimes had to turn people away, like a woman who had traveled from Utqiagvik to Palmer. She got there,
1: and bless her heart, when I did the exam, and I could never, I could not ever squeege it out and lie to, to myself or to my records or anything like that. I was worse than an OCD on that sort of thing. Um, but she was she was more 150 days is 21 weeks and four days, and I that was that was a 22 weeker. I said I can't do this. I can't do this.
0: By this time, Carolyn says performing abortions was as normal as any other OBGYN medical procedure. Though she performed abortions up to 21 and a half weeks, Carolyn says more than 90% of the abortions she did were done in the first trimester, the first 13 weeks. She estimates she did three to five abortions a week in the Valley Hospital, though there were peaks and dips. Obviously after Christmas, 12 weeks after Christmas, there's a lot of
1: them to do. Six to 12 weeks after New Year's, a lot of partying, there's a lot of them to do.
0: And she says she had a good safety record. I wasn't having
1: any bad events, any failures, any disasters. I was very, very, very conservative
0: about what I did, my dates and all that other stuff. As doctors, Carolyn and George were part of the community. They went to the Presbyterian Church. Their two kids attended middle and high school in Palmer. It wasn't a secret that Carolyn performed abortions. She says the board of her and Georgia's nonprofit was very supportive. But not everyone in the community was. Throughout her time in Palmer, starting a couple months after they arrived, Carolyn was harassed. She received hate mail and phone calls in the middle of the night. People against abortion rights went to her workplace. People would start having... um meetings outside
1: the little hospital in Palmer. And then when I would come to work, get out of the car, go in to make rounds, they would hiss and boo. And that was still at a time when I had the little office in the hospital there. So they would come in and sit around and say whatever it is they had to say, um, and line up, just like a march, as it were. yeah, and then that's when the letters started and the phone calls and uh, soaping of the car and the airs out of the tires and phone calls from all over the state, all over the state.
0: What were they saying to you? They were inside your place of work. What were they saying to you?
1: Oh, there goes the baby killer. Yeah. Is that the baby? Is that the baby killer? What did that do to you? Well, you get steeled. I mean, it was awful. It was really awful. Um, but you, you have to carry on. And you have to... Mercy, I was there. <laughs> I'd come to work, and I'd get ready to go down to the other end of the hospital to do a C-section or to do whatever it was I was going to do. Well, it's, it's got to go on. I can't stop that. Um, but it wasn't pretty...
0: Did you know them? Yes.
1: Yes.
0: She says that people's behavior toward her was so egregious and filled with vindictiveness, but she never felt unsafe. In the decades after she practiced in Palmer, several abortion doctors were murdered around the country, which leads Carolyn to think that if she had been an abortion provider later, she might have been shot. Carolyn's kids were teenagers at the time. And you know how teenagers can be. Carolyn thought her kids hated her just like everyone else hated her. I was way, way,
1: way too busy. Um, I showed up for concerts, plays. My kids were in plays. I showed up for everything I could possibly show up for. Um, I made them go to church, (laughs) even take the offering, do all that, you know, all of that stuff. I did the best I could, but I always felt it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough.
0: On the outside, Carolyn was calm and collected. But inside, she says she was a basket case.
1: Most people didn't know that. They saw me as very... um, Of course, I had to be in charge in the operating room. I had to be in charge when a person was in labor, screaming their heads off or whatever, and... You know, I got to the place where I could almost um, talk a woman through her delivery by just my soft voice and sitting there. And I knew that was happening, and she knew that was happening, and I knew I was very good at that, but nobody knew what was going on inside. And, oh, the fear of God Almighty, what if this woman dies? What if this baby dies? Oh, my God. All of the horrible things that you can possibly think of, I went through them all uh,
0: a great deal of the time. Because, you see, at the same time Carolyn was performing abortions and being called a baby killer, she was also delivering lots and lots of babies. And she was really good at it. We never lost one. There were also colleagues at the hospital who didn't want to work with her. Carolyn recalls a person who worked in the lab and refused to draw blood for abortion patients due to his religious objections. There were also nurses who wouldn't work with Carolyn when she was providing abortions. A few of the nurses, religious or otherwise, just simply could not help. In April 1981, Carolyn submitted her name to Governor Jay Hammond for appointment to the Alaska State Medical Board. The board regulates the practice of medicine, including abortion procedures. According to court documents, the appointment process resulted in some confusion in the governor's office. A letter appointing Carolyn to the medical board, dated in May, was signed by Governor Hammond's signature machine, but the letter wasn't supposed to be sent until the governor actually gave his approval, and it wasn't sent. Carolyn never received this letter from the governor. But the governor's press secretary announced Carolyn's appointment, and the lieutenant governor sent Carolyn a congratulatory letter. It was also reported in local newspapers. In response, the Alaska Right to Life wrote about Carolyn in a June newsletter. It said, Stop Baby Killer Brown. It called her the Matsu Valley's number one abortionist. And instructed its readers to contact the governor to urge him not to appoint Carolyn to the Alaska State Medical Board. The newsletter article said, and this will become important later, we cannot believe that Governor Hammond will bow to anti life pressure to appoint an abortionist whose methods were so horrible as to cause a boycott by every nurse employed at Valley Hospital.
1: It was very defamatory which is why I decided to sue them, because
0: it was very defamatory. Uh, It was awful. Governor Hammond eventually sent Carolyn a letter and apologized for the erroneous announcement of her appointment. He wrote that he had decided to follow his past practice of appointing a person recommended by the State Medical Association. The association had not recommended Carolyn Because it felt that the vacancies on the medical board, which previously had been filled by Anchorage doctors, should again be filled by Anchorage doctors. That's according to court documents. In a 1981 lawsuit, Carolyn claimed that the defendants intimidated the governor and caused him to withdraw her appointment, resulting in damage to her professional reputation and career. Carolyn was joined by other doctors as well in a complaint against Bill Moffitt, the primary author of the newsletter article, and Alaska Right to Life for libel. The complaint also alleged defamation based on the state fair sign, what was written in the newsletter, and press conferences where they called Carolyn a killer of babies.
1: I was so horrified that somebody would uh, say this about me.
0: Because that wasn't who I was. Sally Mead was horrified too. In September 1981, Sally was pregnant and a patient of Carolyn's.
2: She was so engaged with me, with the person. I assume she was that way with all of her patients. But it was like she was focused. Um, you didn't like run in and out of the appointment, there was time.
0: Sally lived in a two-story log cabin that she'd built in Bird Creek, which is south of Anchorage, which means she'd drive past Anchorage in her hour and 15-minute drive to Palmer for her appointments with Carolyn. That's also where she delivered her baby, at the Valley Hospital. It wasn't an easy delivery.
2: It ended up taking about, I can't remember its written down somewhere, but like 12 hours. And it was like through the night. Um, and... In the end, she said, I think his head is bumping into your pelvic bone. So I know you didn't really want to go into the OR, but let's just try and see if we can help him get out. So she takes me into the OR, and of course I'm having, you know, contractions like crazy. I've been having them for hours. Um, And she takes the forceps.
0: Sally had her husband and a friend with her. And her arms were around their necks, strangling them, because she was in so much pain.
2: She takes the forceps, she puts them there, lowers the baby's head down, and boink, out he comes. That's all it took.
0: (laughs) In the moments after her son was born, as she was waiting for him to get cleaned and brought to her, Sally had a thought. She knew Carolyn performed abortions, and she had seen the right-to-life display at the state fair. In her mind, Carolyn was being attacked. Sally had also heard about the lawsuit.
2: And it was somewhere in that point with the delivery that I just had a flash. You know, this was something I could do to help. I could help create a legal fund for her and support this
0: effort. At the time, Carolyn was paid $36,000 a year, which was more than the typical family, but not as much more as doctors today. Sally started the Carolyn Brown Legal Fund— She made a pamphlet detailing Carolyn's position, wrote letters, made phone calls, held gatherings.
2: But I think the raising money was not all that difficult because there was a large community, particularly of women, but some men, you know, who really felt this was an issue that needed to be spoken to because, you know, we'd all go to the state fair. So we'd all see these, you know, exhibits from Right to Life. And they were ...attacking the doctors who did the abortions.
0: But in that court case, Carolyn started to lose. In 1984, the Superior Court dismissed several of Carolyn's claims against Right to Life, but not all of them. Bill Moffat and Alaska Right to Life pushed for a summary judgment to end the rest of the case. The Superior Court denied the motion, setting up an appeal... The matter eventually reached the Alaska Supreme Court in the case Moffitt versus Brown, which would have implications not only for Carolyn Brown, but for free speech. Besides the two parties and their lawyers, there was another party involved in the case as a friend of the court.
3: My name is John McKay, and I am an attorney. I- Came to Alaska uh, in the fall of seventy-seven, late fall, and I took the bar in seventy-eight, and I've been practicing law uh, in Alaska ever since, um, almost the entire time, representing news media, journalists, uh, newspapers, broadcasters.
0: John was representing the Alaska Press Club in Moffitt versus Brown, a disclosure. The Alaska Beacon employs John when legal issues come up.
3: We wanted to basically take the position in the in the court that whatever way this came out, we wanted the court to be looking beyond the interest of Dr. Brown or the Right to Life uh, to say what you know this this case uh, dealing with the standards in libel law really probably affects. Us the you know the press in Alaska really more than more than the parties in, in in a sense I mean it'll have a longer impact more important impact in some ways on on the ability of the press to do its job.
0: John says people saw Moffat versus Brown as a case about abortion,
3: but I really think this is a case about talking about abortion. So it could be talking about any other issue too, but abortion was then and remains a really you know. Hot button issue that that arouses strong passions on every side, and I think that the First Amendment and the you know same constitutional provision, Alaska Constitution, you know, guarantees free speech, free press, and if you can't talk freely about these things because you're worried that people are going to sue you, then you're going to be less likely to take on those important issues.
0: What John wanted to ensure was a standard that made it clear that free speech and freedom of the press were protected. The alleged statement of defamation the Alaska Supreme Court was looking at was remember that line from the newsletter? It claimed that Carolyn's abortion methods were so horrible as to cause a boycott by every nurse employed at Valley Hospital. That statement was inaccurate. Some nurses wouldn't work with Carolyn on abortions. Not all. But Carolyn's side also had to prove that the statement was made with actual malice. Here's why. According to the courts, Carolyn was a public figure because, as John explains, she voluntarily sought appointment to the state medical board.
3: And they said Carolyn Brown submitted a letter to the governor asking to be put on the medical board. Uh, She put herself in that position of, becoming a public figure for at least the limited purposes of dealing with, uh, you know, the the abortion question and the issues that came up around whether she should be on the board or not.
0: In a different case, a 1964 U.S. Supreme Court case called New York Times versus Sullivan, the court placed certain constitutional limitations on state defamation laws. To recover damages for libel, which is what Carolyn was suing for, a public figure must prove two things— First, that the statement was false, and second, that the false statement was made with actual malice. Though Bill Moffat's assertion about a boycott by every nurse at Valley Hospital was not accurate, he claimed he didn't know it was inaccurate, and the court agreed. Bill had gotten his information from Robert Ogden, the hospital administrator. Robert Ogden testified that most But not all of the nurses on the nursing staff at Valley Hospital refused to participate in Dr. Brown's second trimester abortions. He described the situation as escalating gradually, that at first a number of nurses were willing to help. But as time went on, there became fewer and fewer that would help on second trimester abortions. Carolyn's side wasn't able to successfully prove that Bill Moffitt wrote the inaccurate statement with malice. The Alaska Supreme Court sided with Bill Moffitt in the Alaska Right to Life. Carolyn Brown lost the lawsuit. John McKay says it was a good result from the perspective of the press. He explains what the judge wrote. Uh,
3: you know, we said this after all, it's not a case about whether abortion is acceptable or might be punished, but rather about whether public speech about abortion was acceptable and could be punished.
0: In 1988, Carolyn and George sold their Matsu practice, gave the profits to their nonprofits board, and left Alaska for Vermont. There, Carolyn was an assistant professor of the OBGYN department at the University of Vermont Medical School, where she trained others to perform abortions. The Browns stayed in Vermont until 2001, when Carolyn was asked to be the assistant director for the Alaska Division of Public Health. Carolyn and George returned to Alaska, to Juneau this time. After about a year and a half, the new governor, Frank Murkowski, gave Carolyn the pink slip. In 2004, George and Carolyn went to Kenya for two years to set up a program that cared for HIV patients. When they returned to Juneau, Carolyn worked at a number of clinics, but was winding down her medical career. Now, she's very active in the League of Women Voters and AARP and stays connected with what's happening in the Capitol building on issues like prison health care, suicide prevention, and opioid abuse. She's also a voracious reader. Carolyn says she is still learning to be at peace with what is.
1: Well, I went through a time of anger, rage, vitriolic hate um, for the people, the people who were the head honchos of the Alaska Right to Life. It took me a long time to get over that. um, But I was only destroying myself by doing that. And uh, the tincture of time does a lot of things for people, as you well know
0: She reads a lot of philosophy and is interested in learning about different religions. One thing she doesn't do is attend abortion rights rallies. I remember when I first
1: uh, moved here in 2001, and we would have those rallies on Robey, and I was asked to speak at them.
0: I cannot do that. Never could. Carolyn is clear that she's pro-abortion rights, but it's not a simple topic to speak about.
1: I couldn't stand up in front of the uh, Capitol and say not one word. I did go one year and stand up and just stand there. But I
0: was, I couldn't, it's too much. I asked Carolyn what she means. It's too much. I don't know. I don't know.
1: I still have to ask myself questions. What have I done? What is right? What is right? What is life? I know what life is, and I know that this tissue here is human, that I know whether it's a person. That's my struggle. What's the difference in humanity and personhood? Uh, but I, I potential person. There are just so many unknown questions. So she simply doesn't attend the rallies. And maybe I'm, pardon my phrase, chicken shit for doing it. But um, I'm just glad I don't have to make those decisions anymore. I am—that's a gift for me to myself. It doesn't mean that I'm against abortions. I just don't know what is a person. I don't know.
0: It's complicated, isn't it? Ultimately, she says abortion and what constitutes a life is not black and white. It's not a yes or no question. Instead, it's complicated and ever-changing and dependent on so many different factors like a person's background, spirituality, family history. And that decision on what abortion is, what personhood is, Carolyn says, is not for her to determine. She doesn't think it's for the Supreme Court to determine either, Or for all the other people who usually end up getting involved in these discussions and decisions. There's no simple way to put it. It's just complex. This episode was written, reported, and produced by me, Lisa Fu. It was edited by Andrew Kitchenman and engineered by Dave Waldron. This is Private Right from the Alaska Beacon.